So hello, everybody. Uh, thank you very much for joining us and welcome to this podcast by the Royal College of Anaesthetists. My name is Dr. Claire Shannon. I'm a consultant anaesthetist in London, specialising in paediatric anaesthesia. And I'm very, very fortunate to be joined today by Dr. Richard Martin, who is consultant and honorary associate professor in paediatric anaesthesia at Great Ormond Street Hospital, London. Welcome, Richard. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me to do this. It's a real privilege. Thank you. So today we're going to talk about the management of procedure induced anxiety in children, which is a subject that I think is of concern to all practicing anaesthetists and in particular paediatric anaesthetists. So without further ado, I'm going to hand over to Richard. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks, Clarence. It's a real privilege to be asked to speak on this subject for, that I've been interested in for more than 20 years now. Many of us are familiar with the concerns regarding anxiety and induction of anaesthesia and the anxiety that children experience with uh, many procedures in hospital existence. And more importantly, probably the, the consequences of the, the associated psychological morbidity that these children suffer as a direct consequence. Um, if you look back over history, um, we've known for at least 80 years uh, with regards to the literature that these concerns exist. And Levy's paper from 1945, particularly poignant um, in that it refers to a, a review of a number of cases of children that suffer from significant uh, psychological morbidity following their surgeries. And the description of the uh, symptomatology is such that it could have been written today and uh, is equivalent to many papers written in the recent past. And the no most notable element of it is that he mentions at least two patients of his that tried to commit suicide uh, as a consequence of their anxiety surrounding surgery. In addition, uh, as a consequence of the paper being published just after the First and the Second World War, he makes a reference to the symptomatology being very similar to battle trauma, and uh, which in today's money is known as PTSD. Um, so we've known that these issues exist for a very, very long time. And I guess the question arises why, why we've not yet managed to acceptably provide for these issues. Uh, it's not to say that many, many people are not trying to do so. And I, I guess that when you look at the consequences of procedure-induced anxiety and the uh, long-term uh, morbidity and the pattern that that takes, yes, it can be PTSD, but the most, more, you know, the more common things that you hear parents particularly talk about are night terrors, nightmares, you know, temper tantrums, behavioural uh, distress expressed in the, the, that sort of format. You can see regression of de developmental milestones. You can see eating disorders. You know, there, there is a whole raft of well-recognised um, symptoms that are signs of psychological trauma, um, which again, from a historical perspective, Kane has shown that there's a direct association between these and the anxiety and induction of anaesthesia. Richard, I'm interested in, in understanding how common procedural-induced anxiety is in the UK pop population. 
Do you have some statistics you could share with us on that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that in many respects, they're quite um, sort of striking. And essentially, if you look back over the last sort of 80 years or so of um, the research into this field, you, you and if you sort of marry those to sort of UK population statistics in the UK itself, then the, the figures that you get are quite striking. Uh, I think that the, in 2016, the um, House of Commons report um, suggested that the number of children under the age of 18 in the UK was just under 14 million. Um, and if you marry that with the statistics for admitted patient care in the UK for children or people under the age of 18, which is about just short of 800,000 in, in the year. The literature suggests that sort of 40 to 60 percent of children will experience anxiety induction. And so if you apply the statistics, that equates to some 392,000 children per year in the UK that experience anxiety induction, which in, it, in itself is not particularly surprising. You know, some research papers have put the level of anxiety induction up around 90 percent even and I think it's very for anybody who's had surgery themselves obviously you know most people are anxious but when you realize that for children that that's going to be linked to some level of post-procedural uh, psychological behavioral change which is indicative of trauma and you apply the known statistics for that between two and four weeks after surgery there's a range of between 24 and 60 percent of those children that have had surgery total that will show signs of psychological trauma. So if you took a, an intermediate figure, you were looking at half of the children that are having surgery. So again, some 390,000 children still suffering signs of psychological trauma up to four weeks following their surgery. And in fact, you know, we've done our own uh, study um, that shows that the, up to 50 or over 50 percent of children after three months will still be showing signs of uh, psychological disruption and trauma. And there's a, a few papers that look at the uh, prevalence of prolonged signs of psychological trauma with a sort of a, an intermediate figure around 8% of children one year following surgery. So that would equate to a figure of over 60,000 children per year still uh, suffering from signs of psychological disruption and trauma a year after their surgery, um, which is approximately or just just short of uh, half a percent of the UK population of children under the age, uh, age of 18. Um, yeah, quite, quite, that, quite striking, really. Mm. Absolutely. And we, we put that in, we tried to put that for ourselves in our unit in real terms. And uh, if that was the case for us at uh, uh, Grey Ormond Street, we do up to about 20,000 cases per year it would equate to 1,600 children per year still suffering from long-term psychological trauma. And if you put that in terms of resources required, if each of those children require five hours of therapy um, and you look to deliver that with psychological support, uh, with uh, clinical psychologists and psychologists working 40 weeks of the year, eight, day, eight hours a day, five days a week, you're looking at at least eight full-time psychologists to provide for those children. And so that's a massive explosion uh, mm. in expectation and resources that would be required to provide for these children. So it's, for sure, it's for sure. quite striking. It sort of in indicates that maybe 
prevention really in terms of the sort of financial cost and the economics prevention is as usual often a very very important strategy for managing Absolutely. these problems so we wind forward to uh present day i guess and one of the most exciting things i think currently is that we can say or we can see that uh, people are starting to uh, generate some framework for dealing with this. There is a network of uh, um, clinicians across the country as part of the procedure induced anxiety network who have come together as lead clinicians in anxiety management. Um, uh, anaesthetists at all the major paediatric units across the country or many of them and uh, we are well into the process of writing an e-learning package uh, that will hopefully uh, come together by the end of this year and be available in uh, the early part of 2022. Hopefully this will underpin the sort of approach to this this sort of unmet need our, our duty of care to these children Additionally, I think it's my opinion that coming out of this or what will, will evolve from this sort of uh, area of interest will be a, a provision of some sort of structured care for children and a gold standard for that would uh, inevitably be some sort of preventive management for children. To do this, I think that you need to be able to screen for children who are more likely to experience anxiety, induction of anaesthesia. You would need to monitor any sort of ongoing issues with anxiety around uh, the time of care or intervention, in addition to sort of picking up children that were not predicted to have issues. And you'd be wanting to follow up uh, the, in the care of these children to ensure that any children that had been uh, affected uh, in a negative manner were offered some sort of support. If we have a, a system of screening, monitoring and follow up, that would be great but what you do then need is you need some sort of um, ability to offer intervention at that, that point so the children that you may uh, predict will be at risk of procedure induced anxiety and post-operative dysfunctional behavior one would hope that you could then intervene prior to their their procedure to try and reduce the impact of the anxiety um, and there's good evidence from the literature that the type of intervention that is uh, one of the most effective would be life skills training. So to deliver th this sort of intervention, you're going to need specialist services. And one would hope that you would uh, have some funding, you know, the evolution of this, this sort of type of provision for anxious children would include funding of play specialists and probably more importantly, psychologists if you apply the um, statistics that are published on this subject, we recently uh, completed a, a service development exercise at Great Ormond Street Hospital looking at 100 consecutive ENT patients, essentially to see whether it would be feasible to screen, to monitor and follow up children with having procedures in hospital. And we found it was feasible, it was predictive, um, so it was essentially possible to screen and to for that screening system to point out children that are more likely to develop procedure induced, develop post-operative dysfunctional behaviour. So 
And we found that after three months, about 50%, over 50% of our children still were showing signs of post-operative dysfunctional behaviour as well, which is consistent with the, the literature statistics. But if you're going to implement such a system, which you would need to do, that would have to underpin a some sort of specialist team that would then be able to offer a form of intervention for supporting these children preoperatively uh, with the hope of reducing or preventing procedure-induced anxiety and to follow up children and offer support if any psychological trauma was inflicted. So I think as, as time goes on with the evolution of this, this sort of uh, area of interest, uh, we will need to look towards uh, funding some type of um, service to sort of uh, offer support for these children. And I think that rather than reinvent the wheel uh, with regards to this, um, if you look at the evolution of pain services in the early 90s, essentially what, what happened is, you know, most anaesthetists had a core competency in managing sort of pain. And in the same way, I think most anaesthetists should have a core competency in understanding and managing uh, procedure induced anxiety. But there will be a subset of these children who are exceptionally difficult to manage and need sort of specialist input uh, from psychology and play. And in that same way that I, I can imagine that there may well be the evolution of specialist anxiety management services. So, as I said, I think the vast majority of children will be looked after by all anaesthetists um, on a day to day basis with either an understanding of how to manage um, anxiety in children, which is of a normal inverted commas level, and also the ability to offer augmented care, which may well be through sort of, um, you know, pre-medication or understanding the patterns of communication and anxiety management strategies. But then they would probably refer on to a specialist group who would manage children that had shown themselves to be an issue at the time of uh, anaesthetic induction or who were thrown up as, as issues preoperatively as part of the screening system. Now, I think the, um, you know, naturally, it's, it's, everybody has an area of interest and this is this is the area that I have an interest in. But I think that considering the history of this issue, of us understanding this issue, the consequences of this issue and the statistics, which suggest that, you know, somewhere in the region of 8% of children are probably um, still suffering from psychological trauma a full year following their procedure, which, you know, equates to over 60,000 children in the UK each and every year. And which and I, I, I repeatedly have to do the maths on this to to double check that this is the case. But if you look at the population of children under the age of 18, it equates to just under half a percent of the whole UK population under 18 is affected in that manner each and every year. So it's so it's of a magnitude that we we can't really ignore it. So I feel that the, the going forward, the only way to do anything, you know, to provide for this effectively and appropriately is to do exactly that. We can't just say that it will be fine. It won't. We can't just say that children will forget. They don't. And we can't uh, say that there's nothing you can do because we can. And all of those things have been borne out in the literature. That's really fantastic, Richard, and, and, and how interesting to get that sort of systematic approach that you've delivered 
and actually worrying at the same time because because the numbers of children that seem to be adversely affected due to this sort of problem seems very much larger than than we have really got to terms with up until now i, I was i was wondering if i uh, just just to pick up on the point you raised about the need to a address this and b yeah. to put in place a system whereby there is a commitment and a, a and a resource to screen and monitor and treat with a sort of proper framework approach i'm i'm just wondering if you would have a sense of what you think the barriers to this not being done before is i think that like myself before you know i happened to look into this this area of interest i think that many of us have been unaware of the research and the the papers that have been published on on this this issue i think that there are a number of misconceptions that have continued and 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 continue to this day and, and are on, you know in existence as an ongoing issue is is exactly that the children um don't remember uh these issues that they they will forget that it doesn't do them any harm and uh the last big misconception is you know that there's nothing that you can do about it anyway and i feel that raft of you know reasons for not having done anything about it is probably enough in in and of itself you know the fact that it does cause issues that they do remember and it, you know is something you can do something about is is another matter and that's a matter of education that's something i've spent a, a lot of time trying to change the other thing is that i think that in this current climate in the nhs where we are encouraged or or it's sort of expected to be excessively efficient and moving from a to b i think there is the truth that sometimes children will require more resources and it may take more time to support these children although that's not always the case that you know that by offering a small amount of support and input, many of these children will do exceptionally well. But it is undoubtedly true that, and I think that the current president of the Association of Paediatric Anaesthetists said to me some time ago that when you consider the evidence, the reality is that we're probably not cancelling enough children, which is very uh, interesting comment i hadn't myself thought about that before which is that we need to if we're going to provide for these children there will be a number of children that, that, that we don't recognize as being an issue so i so i i think that there is probably the perception that we just need to get on with it we just need to get these procedures done that you know that we don't have the time to provide for them but I find that, you know, the, I, I get a sinking feeling when I think that that may well be one of the reasons, you know, the, the point one on the NHS constitution being that we aim to offer a high standard of, uh, of care, both psychologically and physically to all patients. And when you start to trawl through the, the Children's Act, probably the further back in time in the early, early part of the latter century, that knowingly cause inflicting psychological harm on children is is perceived as um, sort of uh, breaching their human rights. I mean, 
I think that the, there is nobody amongst any of us that would come to work and want to inflict any, any trauma on any of our patients. That's not why we're there. But I think that the overriding drive to get work done and the, if you marry that to the perception that there's nothing you can do about it anyway and they won't remember, you can very much understand why, you know, that the, there hasn't been any provision for any of this in, in the past or the recent past. And again, like yeah. as, as, I, as I stress, you know, I don't think that anybody really ever has wanted to inflict any harm on children at all, quite the opposite. But I think that at, at times, you know, that people have felt that there, there is little else to offer. Yeah. And maybe maybe it just reflects the whole sort of situation around funding models and so forth around mental health services, particularly in young yeah. younger people. But I think there is an awareness now, I don't know whether you would agree with this, that the spotlight is turning on to young people's mental health. And perhaps now is the moment to reconsider how we provide the service for, as you, as you describe. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. And I, you know, I, I, I've always been a, a glass half full person and, and you take positives from everything, even sort of, you know, sort of barriers in the way for change um, mm. or difficulties. And I think that, you know, I think that it is a, a minority of people that wouldn't want to provide gold standard psychological care to every single one of their pa uh, patients. And I think that you know, the tide has turned, I think, and our awareness has turned, particularly during the last year, where we've all been under a lot of uh, uh, stress and had difficulties and pressure and an awareness that psychological health is is key to to everything, you know, underpins everything that we do. So I'm, I'm hoping that that change in awareness and, and the sympathy towards those issues will drive this forward uh, at the same, same time as all of the other work that's going on currently. Do you think, just picking up on that point for, for the clinicians, really, um, mm. obviously in the long term, system changes are going to help here, but yeah. are there quick wins that people locally can ins institute in their departments that might make the situation for their children a little better? I think that it's a very interesting question because I think that you're absolutely correct. What you imply is that some very simple changes in culture can make a massive difference. One of the, you know, I've been working going on the street for, since 2005 in a, in a permanent capacity. And one of the biggest changes that we've seen is the awareness amongst our colleagues and the um, multidisciplinary team around us of the issue, of the consequences of the issue and how we choose to approach that issue. One of my colleagues highlighted a paper that was recently published, which uh, offered a structure for approaching children who refuse surgery. And, and my feeling reading it was that that's very much what we do uh, in our institution. And I think that that's the consequence of A, understanding the issue, being aware of the evidence, and B, understanding that there are ways of approaching these things. And I think that, you know, basic communication sensitivities and, and approaches can make a massive difference to these children and the willingness and the understanding that you will need to cancel some children to back off and to send them for elective intervention. 
and I think as part of understanding how that works, one has to see very clearly that there is emergent management and there is elective management. Emergent management essentially is going to be for things that you don't expect that are happening happening in front of you that were not predictable or in a scenario where it is not possible to implement elective therapy or intervention. But the gold standard would always, you know, have to be elective intervention, which was targeting the empowering a child and uh, helping them develop coping strategies of their own and, and the broader family unit. So I think that the sensitivity towards that and the understanding that it is important and the understanding that you can do something about it, to me, that, um, you know, then generates a motivation to try. And that is probably the most important step towards resolving the issue in the long run. That's great. Could I just, I mean, we we can't, uh, and I, I know we may well be pressed for time here, but I, I, sure. I was wondering, we can't talk about paediatric anaesthesia and preparation for children without actually talking about the parents as well. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm just, I think most paediatric anaesthetists and anaesthetists in general are familiar with play therapy and other strategies directed particularly towards the children. But is there evidence that we should be focusing more on the parents, either with or without the children, to reduce the anxiety for the children? Sure. I mean, I think undoubtedly that evidence does exist. I think that, you know, I think most clinicians will recognise that the children that are most at risk and most difficult to support are the ones that come from a family unit that are are such that they don't have coping strategies or it's not a, uh, a currency within the family unit. The interventions that have been shown to be most effective, the life skills training, Kane uh, sort of uh, showed from his papers and, and his investigations that a sort of multidisciplinary, multi sort of format intervention with the broader family unit, including the parents, did make a big difference because, you know, if, if a child has no resources or is struggling, the likelihood is that the parents and the family unit are such that they will struggle. And we know that anxious parents cause anxiety in children. You know, an anxious parent can actually make a child that's coping anxious and not uh, unable to cope. So they can convert them into from a functional to a, a non-functional child with regards to anaesthetic induction. So absolutely, undoubtedly, hands down, involving parents and trying to empower them to support their children in the same way that we're talking about educating our profession with regards to the research and the, the consequences of this, this issue, helping parents understand it as an issue and understand how to support their children and help them develop coping strategies is critical. You're not going to uh, empower a child and make them, you know, self-sufficient and independent in terms of managing their own anxieties if you don't support the parents and the family units as well. Great. Richard, thank you very much. There's been such an interesting conversation we've had this afternoon. I'd just like to thank you once again for your time and and your insight into what is quite a stark and shocking problem I think that we're only just beginning to get to grips with. So on behalf of the College of Anesthetists, thank you very much. 
Thank you. It's been a privilege. Thank you for listening to this Royal College of Anaesthetists podcast. Make sure you don't miss out on the latest episodes by clicking subscribe on your favourite podcatcher. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please make sure you give us a review. It helps others find our podcast. And finally, if you would like to access more podcasts, as well as videos, e-learning, webinars, and our programme of events and courses, you can find them all online at rcoa.ac.uk forward slash education. We hope to see you again soon. Please note, all views expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals and not those of the Royal College of Anaesthetists.